Welcome to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm the Deputy Editor of Energy Intelligence Finance, and this is the latest in our podcast series covering competitive intelligence in the energy industry. Joining me today is Noah Brenner, the Executive Editor of Operations for Energy Intelligence. Thanks for being here, Noah. Thanks for having me, Luke. And we've also got Abhi Rajendran, the Director of the Energy Intelligence Research and Advisory Unit. Hey, Abhi. Hi, guys. Luke, thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about M&A and consolidation in the oil and gas sector, coming, of course, on the heels of Chevron's recent acquisition of Noble Energy. That deal's gotten plenty of attention since it was announced for many reasons, not least of which is the fact that it's one of the few significant energy mergers that we have seen in quite a while. It's no secret that M&A has slowed down considerably over the last several quarters and has been especially tepid this year due to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, as we all know. So today we won't dwell too long on the question that seemingly always gets asked when we see a big acquisition like this, which is whether this will kick off that elusive wave of M&A that seems to never come. Spoiler alert, we do not think it will. Instead, uh, let's talk about how this Chevron Noble deal reflects the current market and what it might say about the priorities of potential buyers and sellers going forward. So Noah, let's start with you. This was a $5 billion all stock acquisition plus the assumption of another $8 billion in Noble debt. So uh, enterprise value of like $13 billion. Um, So from Chevron's perspective, why does this deal make sense? Why now and why Noble? Okay, well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I mean, for, you know, first off, let's just think kind of about some of the financial aspects of this, which is that Chevron didn't, you know, didn't pay cash for this. Um, Chevron, this is an all share, all stock transaction. Um, it was done at, at just a seven, a uh, little over a 7% premium to Noble's previous closing price. And, you know, as well, Chevron shares had had significantly outperformed those of Noble over the past, uh, say, the trailing 52 weeks. I mean, we had seen uh, Chevron down, oh, say maybe 25, 27% over that period, which, you know, doesn't sound like great performance, but honestly is the best performing of, of all the Western majors and, and compared to Noble, which was down more than 50%. And so, you know, Chevron was able to, to leverage that, that differentiated share price performance to, to really get a pretty good deal and, you know, on a per BOE basis, um, you know, for Noble. Now, you know, Chevron did have, it, it had tried to acquire Occidental Petroleum, or I'm sorry, it had tried to acquire Anadarko Petroleum and lost out to Oxy, famously, um, and walked away with that billion dollar um, breakup fee. So that certainly helped. Um, it had used that money to buy back shares. Um, and, you know, as well, this, the portions of Noble's portfolio, while not a perfect fit, uh, potentially for Chevron, do actually fit pretty well. I mean, when you're looking at the Permian Basin, Noble's got 92,000 acres in, uh, you know, on the Texas side of the Delaware subbasin, and so it, it's not bolt on to uh, to Chevron, but it's pretty close. Um, you've got this East Med gas position with uh, both current production and the opportunity for expansion uh, through non uh, pre FID discoveries, and so you know as well, that's that's a pretty solid fit. And then you've got as well, you know, the DJ Basin, which is is you know, not an area, a core area for Chevron, but it is at this point producing a significant amount of cash flow. And so, you know, when you add all this up, what you know, you don't get that sort of perfect puzzle piece fit, but you do get a picture of um, Chevron again acting opportunistically 
uh, and using its position and its advantages to to secure a, a pretty good deal on some pretty good assets. Mm-hmm. Abi, so th- these East Mediterranean gas assets are probably these deep water offshore uh, gas assets um, are probably you know the most unique part of of the noble portfolio, at least among U.S. onshore focused players. So. How exactly do these assets fit in with Chevron's portfolio and within its larger strategy? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question, and you know the you know the with with, with Chevron as a potential buyer, I think many were focused on um, on the U.S. and 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 the shale patches as kind of the most likely sources of them getting bigger, right? But but certainly this is a kind of a very different asset um, than 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 what. Many of the kind of the the U.S. centric ENPs have, um, and I think you know, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, you know, certainly there are some questions around, you know, how sort of complementary it is. Um, you know, given that it's you know it really is sort of a, a new leg uh, to to the stool for Chevron overall, um, and certainly the international part of the stool. Um, you know, Chevron is you know has has recently sort of shied away from um, from LNG. Um, as a as a source of growth, just kind of given you know how capital intensive it's been and um, and some of their challenges and you know, in Australia and other places, um, but but the interesting thing about about this particular asset is you know is, is that one you know a lot of the the capex has already been spent uh, for kind of the initial development right by Noble, um, it is a you know it's a it's a relatively um, you know sort of a free cash flow ready asset um, you know with some growth optionality um, in a region where there is. Um, you know, kind of a, a strong prospect for for demand growth. Um, you know, for for Chevron, you know, potentially the you know the the more likely uh, strategy that they would pursue is along kind of regional pipeline opportunities, um, as opposed to this kind of kicking off um, you know some new uh, opportunities on the LNG side. Uh, so so it's an interesting kind of unique asset that you know I think in the kind of in the overall noble portfolio. Uh, they felt like came on the on the cheap, and you know already had a lot of sunk capex into it, um, and we generally agree. Um, you know, I think I think a you know an attractive part of of, of Noble uh, being acquired, you know, was the fact that including the synergies, of course, to Chevron, it is accretive on a cash basis, on a on an earnings basis, um, is quite attractive on kind of a, an oil break even price basis. Um, and I think on a lot of these boxes, the the Eastern Med assets um, helps take it. Um, so I think I think that 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 certainly helped to kind of get the deal across the finish line. So you mentioned that a lot of the upfront cash has already been spent, and I believe the Leviathan asset actually came online towards the end of last year. So there's kind of some immediate cash flow there, but there's still some other assets that will need to be developed um, and monetized. Uh, and I think, Noah, has there been some questions over just how, you know, just how to monetize some of these assets and just sort of the political difficulties in the region? Sure. I mean, you know, this certainly isn't the, the easiest region to navigate um, if, if you're an international oil company, um, just given the, the, geopol- the complex geopolitics, I guess we could say, of the area. I mean, first off, just looking at, at monetization of, of these, these uh, gas reserves in the Eastern Med, I mean, there is... There's the potential. There's a proposal for a pipeline. Um, it, it is seen as quite expensive and and potentially technically difficult, just given some of the subsea terrain that it would need to cross. There is uh, discussion of you know standalone LNG development, 
and there is potentially some backfill opportunity at uh, at brownfield LNG projects in Egypt. Um, but I mean, these are things you know that Noble has has struggled to to navigate for sure in the past. Now Chevron has has more size. It has um, you know some some unique capabilities, as, as Mike Worth pointed out. You know they've they've uh, you know looked at complex monetization of of gas projects in the past. You know, on the other hand, I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that that this will make it you know easier for Chevron to to find uh, a strategy that is both kind of politically palatable across the region, but also um, economically viable, given where gas and LNG prices are, you know, now and, and potentially into the future. Um, and you know, I think the other thing, just just taking a step back even a little bit further, you know, we need to acknowledge that Chevron Cross, what was really seen by many as a, a pretty thick red line, a, a pretty um, you know, serious red line by investing both in Israel and in, in the Arab Middle East. Uh, this is not something that any of its peers have done. Um, Exxon, mm -hmm. when they uh, pulled the data package for an Israeli bid round, I mean, it, it made headlines across the region. Uh, and so, you know, Chevron now will have assets uh, in Israeli waters. They will also have assets in um, the neutral zone between uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Kuwait. They have downstream um, uh, stakes across the region. And then, you know, finally, and perhaps most importantly, they're going to be um, trying to be involved in the uh, in the Qatar LNG expansion um, mm -hmm. and are, are going to be part of that bidding. And, and, you know, I'm sure Chevron has done their homework. I'm sure there there's ongoing outreach to the countries in the region. Um, but, you know, when I talk to our correspondents in the Middle East, they, they do see this as a potential issue. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, getting back uh, a little more general, what this deal might say about the M&A market, uh, gas and LNG have, have long been discussed as, you know, the hydrocarbon sector's big bridge to the energy transition, although it's, it is the European majors who have really made gas a pillar of their current and future strategies. But, Abi, is it reasonable to think that gas-weighted assets or portfolios are going to be more attractive to potential buyers as uncertainty around oil demand and prices continues kind of in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, sort of as you kind of kicked off this this discussion saying that we shouldn't reach any sort of broader conclusions around M&A, um, you know, as a result of this deal, um, I think similarly, we shouldn't make any sort of broader assumptions around, you know, how this Particular deal, you know, necessarily signals an increased attractiveness for for gas LNG assets, um, you know, more broadly. Um, you know, I think you know this deal is, was very much uh, very similar to how Chevron's approach to Anadarko was last year. You know, really sort of an opportunistic uh, uh, deal where you know Chevron didn't really want to sort of waste this crisis. Know, being sort of the, the best positioned buyer out there um, and, and and just do nothing and you know and I think they probably scanned the um, the list of potential targets uh, found you know that many had realistic expectations on you know in terms of valuation um, but you know likely that there weren't a lot of willing sellers um, but in noble that there was a willing seller, uh, you know, for for the whole uh, set of assets, and we think they, you know, in a in a normalized both oil and gas uh, market, looking at a couple of years, that they potentially got um, you know this collection of assets 
uh, you know, for for kind of an attractive overall price. Um, you know, I think I think Chevron, you know, specific to to gas LNG, um, you know, was you know not you know, was not shy about beefing up in that area. Uh, again, you know, going back to the parallel with, with, with Anadarko, um, you know, we're, we're not shy about, um, you know, taking on uh, Mozambique LNG into their portfolio. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is another sort of opportunistic um, uh, uh, approach um, from, you know, from their side, uh, you know, in particular, because it was Chevron and not one of the European majors, uh, that that you referenced, Luke, uh, you know, for them to kind of you know add a little bit more gas LNG exposure, um, you know, would would not have sort of you know gone kind of against the grain or you know or leaned them too heavily in, in the LNG area, right? If you know if this was a Shell or Total that did it, or, or even a BP that you know that, that have already kind of bet big on gas, this was this would have kind of you know made that bet more outsized uh, for Chevron. Kind of, you know, a little bit of a uh, just a slight lean on their international side. You know, a little bit of a lean on the gas LNG side. Um, you know, in in particular because the the cash flow profile made sense. Uh, you know, we think it you know was it was kind of a unique opportunistic uh, um, uh, situation. I mean, again, you know, not to read any. Uh, you know, have any kind of broader read-throughs from this that suddenly, you know, gas LNG uh, assets get more attractive, uh, whether it's in the region or, or globally. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion quite yet. No, but I mean, I do think regardless of your outlook on on the gas market, and and you know, we have seen pretty challenged gas markets. Uh, there's also a carbon component to this. I mean, it was a question that, that Chevron was asked. I've seen it, um, you know, brought forward in in various notes and commentaries around the deal. Is that um, you know, by getting a bit gassier, there is a, a better carbon profile for for some of these assets. Now, Mike Worth was very, um, you know. Uh, very clear that that wasn't necessarily driving the deal, that they weren't, um, you know, looking to decarbonize their portfolio by by acquisition or anything like that. But I do think, you know, looking ahead for companies that do have um, emissions goals and, and, you know, Chevron does have them, does have emissions reduction uh, aspirations. They aren't as, uh, certainly aren't as, uh, um, stringent as those we're seeing from the European majors, but you know it, it can't hurt gas's attractiveness as it, within a, a potential acquisition portfolio, um, given given what we're looking at in the trends on carbon. Hmm. All right, let's pull back a little further and maybe just get a little more theoretical. Uh, we've discussed some of the opportunistic rationale for Chevron doing this deal now, um, but at the, and at the same time, calls for consolidation across the oil and gas sector are about as loud as they've ever been. Uh, but I mean, who really wants to be a consolidator today? It's clearly something that would benefit the industry as a whole, but it, it gets harder to justify on an individual corporate level. And I don't think we see a lot of investors imploring companies to take on more debt or just kind of grow for the sake of growth. So what are the parameters that would justify a big corporate transaction like this in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the... The attractiveness of this deal um, was was also around the fact that it ticked so many financial boxes for Chevron, right? I mean, clearly Chevron, you know, being one of the better positioned, um, you know, not just acquirers out there, but certainly just just one of the better positioned companies generally from a financial perspective, balance sheet perspective. Certainly, you know, from our view, the, the super major with the safest dividend. 
Um, all of that helped, you know, and the fact that, you know, you, you add these assets, you know, and of course, factoring the synergies, you know, it, it becomes accretive from an earnings perspective, from a cash flow perspective, you know, from a break-even perspective, all of that helps. And I think, you know, that is sort of the, the, the playbook that, you know, any other prospective buyer, um, you know, would need to sort of um, uh, sign up for too, that, you know, that it's not just a, you know, sort of an inventory or, a, you know, a resource play, um, certainly growth, you know, is not really being valued in this market. Um, but it, but it, that it ticks a lot of financial boxes, uh, you know, first and foremost before, before all the kind of the operational, um, and, 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 and resource, uh, based stuff. Um, you know, and I think, you know, to, to your, to your question, Luke, uh, in, in this environment, we think buyers are, are, are very, very, uh, you know, are going to be very, very careful, uh, about what they do because they don't want, uh, you know, to be seen giving the wrong message to uh, to investors in terms of what they are doing, uh, but I thought, but I also think you know I was touching on this earlier. I think from a seller standpoint, uh, you know, certainly uh, you know I bet Chevron you know cast a wide net and, and canvassed all the potential targets out there. Um, you know, so while theoretically this market is certainly the U.S. kind of EMP space, uh, you know, needs consolidation to really sort of stand the test of time, you know, well into the next five to 10 years and beyond, um, you need to find willing sellers. You need to find sellers who are willing to say, you know, okay, you know, the, the type of deal that makes the most sense is, is one without a premium um, or with a very low premium, um, you know, so, so you need to sort of have sellers that, that, that are willing to sort of swallow that pill. Um, I think that's tough to, 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 to see in this market. Um, you need to see management teams willing to say, okay, I'm willing to forego several more years of pay, um, because it's in the best interest of my company to, you know, to be merged or, or, or folded into another company. Um, that's the sort of mindset that, that really is sort of needed, uh, for consolidation to really kind of, um, you know, kick into gear, which again, you know, we, we think is hard to see in this market. But no, I don't know if you'd add anything to that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one of the things that just stands out to me about this transaction, really about the last couple of maybe that we've seen, um, well, including the Anadarko, is just, um, you know, what is the structure of the U.S. industry going to look like? I mean, there was there was a point in time where we saw the the, the potential for um, a rise of a new class of what we might have called super independents uh, that would have that would come through and and sort of mop up some of the pure play shale players. Um, you know, those were companies. I would say those companies included the likes of say an Anadarko and 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 the Noble as well. Um, now, you know, I think. If, we're follow, if, if we follow the playbook, um, it would seem that maybe some of those companies that we thought would have been consolidators are, are now maybe more likely to be consolidated. Uh, and so I think just the overall, I, I think there's big implications for the overall structure of the U.S. industry um, and, and as well sort of what are, what are companies looking for in, in an acquisition target. I mean, I think given, you know, the news that we had out last night of, of the large Apache discovery in Suriname, um, you know, I, I've got to think that that makes them more attractive to to an outside to a super major type of company. Um, you know, uh, Hess with with U.S. shale exposure and and then this massive option on Guyana. Um, you know, potentially the the um, you know the attention is shifting away from shale precisely at a time when when we're saying that it needs to be consolidated. So, I mean, Abby, I don't know if you have any thoughts just around how. 
you know, what does, what does the shale sector look like? Um, are we left with a bunch of mergers of equals that, you know, I think both you and I have been quite crit critical of um, in terms of smashing together two companies that don't have great positions or great financial strength? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, th I think it's, it's an open question. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you're going to go through this, this sort of, you know, kind of a limbo zombie period over the next, you know, 12, 18 plus months where, you know, you're trying to figure out how this will all sort of sort itself out, um, you know, and, and, and adding another layer of uncertainty on top of it is is an election coming up in a couple of months. Right. Where um, you know, we're certainly changes in the White House and and in the Senate could you know lead to some you know, some, some large shifts in, in, in asset valuations and expectations on, on where you can drill and not drill. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, it's a pretty sort of muddied outlook um, at the moment. Um, and I think the last quick point I would, I would highlight is, you know, is just, you know, kind of around expectations on oil price, right? I mean, oil is sort of at, at the moment, you know, kind of bounced back to 40, but is kind of struggling to, to, to get past that, that 40-ish sort of threshold. Um, you know, whereas in our view, uh, you know, the ENP space in general is already sort of pricing in a return to 50. And, you know, and investors are really not, you know, sort of willing to underwrite a price much higher than that. And so you have sort of these, these valuation disconnects as well um, that, that, that make it difficult for, for M&A to happen in kind of a smooth and, um, you know, and, and, and you know, in, in a repeatable manner across companies. Those are all uh, very good points. But uh, I think we are going to need to leave it there uh, for this time. Uh, so thank you both. Uh, thanks to Noah. No problem. And thank you, Abby. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. Be sure to go check out our website, energyintel.com, where you can read all of our latest news and analysis. My name is Luke Johnson. We'll see you next time.